0: Hey, everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for February 25th, 2021. We're back. Uh, It's been a little while. Uh, The podcast has been on hiatus for a few weeks due to some personal uh, issues, (laughs) personal situation here uh, at Foreign Exchanges HQ. Um, those of you who are not subscribers would not necessarily know that, but uh, we haven't even done, haven't even done a subscriber episode of the podcast for uh, several weeks now, and uh, I want to thank everybody for, um, you know, kind of uh, being patient with me as I work through some things here, um, and, uh, you know, hope that, uh, hope that this delay hasn't put anybody out too badly. But, um, I'm not 100% sure we're going to be back on a weekly schedule just yet, um, but that is my goal is to get back to doing a weekly podcast. It won't always be for, for everybody uh, like it is today. Um, a lot of them will be just for subscribers, uh, but my hope is to, to get back into a regular schedule here. Uh, moving forward. So uh, that disclaimer out of the way. Uh, Thanks to you for uh, checking out the podcast. Uh, If you're here through a podcast app and you're not familiar with foreign exchanges, please check it out at fx.substack.com and uh, consider signing up. Uh, joining the free email list and trying it out, uh, or better yet, uh, becoming a paid subscriber and support uh, supporting the work that goes on at FX, and uh, especially supporting our efforts to expand FX's roster of contributors beyond just me. Uh, now we have Daniel Bessner, of course, who's a regular columnist, and just the other day uh, we introduced a new contributor, somebody who should be familiar to regular listeners of this podcast, Al. Uh, Alex Thurston, Uh, Alex came on board uh, with a piece uh, that... I titled, It Didn't Have to Be This Way. It's a look back at uh, the September 11, 2001 attacks and how the United States could have handled things differently and perhaps less disastrously than it did. Um, That piece is up at FX uh, now. So if you want to check that out, if you haven't already seen it, uh, please do so. Um, And Alex is, in fact, joining me here uh, in a few moments to discuss... Uh, that piece and to get into some things uh, that are going on in his area of expertise, uh, the Sahel region of Africa. Uh, If you're not familiar with Alex, he is assistant professor of political science at the University of Cincinnati, and he is the all-time uh, returning guest champion for foreign exchanges. He's been on this podcast more times than I can count, uh, mostly to talk about things that were happening in the Sahel. Uh, his last appearance was back in November to discuss his book, uh, which if you are interested in the, in what's going on in the Sahel and the um, rise of Islamist groups and the activities of Islamist groups in that region, uh, his book, Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel, local politics and rebel groups was published back in september uh again he was on the program in november to discuss it to kind of go through uh what's in there and talk about it uh so you can check out that interview in the archives in the fx archives or wherever you Get your podcast. Uh, I'm very happy to have Alex on board as a contributor. Uh, he's not going to be writing so much about the Sahel. He does that in other places, and and you know I wanted to give him a chance to uh, an outlet where he can sort of expand on some other things that uh, you know are related to his research, uh, which is largely you know around the intersection of Islam and politics. Uh, so I think he's going to be doing some interesting work in that area. Uh, some interesting work. Uh, uh, on kind of lessons of the war on terror and the way that uh, the West encounters uh, jihadist groups around the world. So I'm very excited to, uh, to have him on board, and I'm very excited to have him here again uh, today to uh, to talk about his peace. Uh, and as I say, we're going to get into some Sahel-related issues. There was a summit recently uh, involving the G5 Sahel Force, uh, or I guess the G5, the Sahel Force is their uh, military arm. But that's a a, a multinational group uh of countries burkina faso chad um i'm trying to do this in alphabetical order <laughs> uh, mali mauritania and niger did it yes um are the five countries and they've sort of you know they've got a, a multinational thing going on with a lot of french support to try and deal with uh, jihadist groups uh, the islamic state and al-qaeda have affiliates running around in that region uh, so we're going to talk about the summit uh the recent summit just a, a few couple of weeks ago uh in france where emmanuel macron you know kind of ruled the roost and we'll talk about that uh and we're also going to talk about the the uh, just completed just declared uh presidential runoff in niger which is already creating some controversy uh we'll talk about the implications of that uh, so it should be a pretty full show uh looking forward to it uh and uh, so with that i'm gonna uh, Uh, Get Alex on the line and we'll start the interview. All right. As I said, I'm joined by Alex Thurston uh, from the University of Cincinnati uh, and the newest contributor uh, to Foreign Exchanges uh, and, of course, the returning uh, champion for uh, most appearances on the podcast. Uh, Alex, uh, thanks for doing the podcast and uh, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me back. Uh, so I wanted to have you on to first, uh, you know, talk a little bit about uh, the piece you wrote for, for FX um, and kind of I don't want to get, you know, I want to go through it too heavily because people should read it. I think it speaks for itself. Um, But just to kind of, you know, discuss some of the themes in there and then, uh, you know, move into some discussion of, you know, a couple of things that have uh, happened recently related to the Sahel uh, kind of defining things or, or, you know, uh, political events and and so forth. So uh, I guess to start, I'm curious... Um, You know, you wrote this piece. It's called It Didn't Have to Be This Way. It's a look back at kind of uh, the response to the the 9-11 attacks and, um, you know, the way that the United States has uh, handled or mishandled uh, the aftermath of that event. Uh, I wonder if you could kind of go back and put yourself in in the, uh, you know, your younger shoes, I guess. Uh, Was there a point at which... Uh, you really came to feel like, okay, this whole like war on terror thing is going completely off the rails uh, and this is not good. I mean, were you sort of on that train the whole time or was there a specific point where you kind of saw what was happening and and it like kind of shook you
1: up? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, you know, thanks for the opportunity to to publish the piece with FX. Um and yeah, as I said on on Twitter, you know, a chance to think about some some bigger picture things than I usually write about. Um I think for me, you know, the the whole period between two thousand and and two thousand six was just really, really dark. I mean you know the 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 election of 2000 was just so fucked up i mean i you know i, I saw it as just a, a really grotesque kind of turning point in the country i mean i was uh i was born in 83 so i was i was 17 at the time of the 2000 election i, I, would, I had just turned 18 like a couple weeks before 9 11 and so i think i saw 9 11 you know and i wasn't i mean i had no idea who you know bin laden was or any of that like I, you know i saw it as just kind of a you know, a, a teenager, right? But I, I think I saw it heavily through the prism of the 2000 election, and just felt, you know, here's this this person, Bush, and his whole team, who who shouldn't even be there in the first place. You know, but but the way I felt at the time, and I, you know, I still feel that way. I mean, I still feel that the 2000 election was was wrongly decided. That that a lot of what happened in Florida was just extremely, you know, shady and so forth. And um, so I think I felt like, you know, these people are not you know they're they're not the people who should be there in the first place and then it felt pretty quickly like they were trying to you know really take advantage of that opportunity in ways that that went far beyond what was warranted obviously nine eleven was this terrible terrible tragedy um but you know the the response to it domestically and abroad seemed not to uh, you know really grapple with with why it had happened and then also to, to use it as a pretext to for for you know for kind of expansive ventures power grabs you know with with the patriot patriot act at home and then you know so quickly pivoting to the not just the invasion of afghanistan but the invasion of iraq and, and you know it was i think it was pretty clear um you know to a lot of people even to me being roughly you know 19 and a half at the time of 2003 that that you know that the case for going in was flimsy that Iraq had, you know, nothing that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with nine eleven and so forth, and then you had had the, you know, two thousand four election. I mean, I was just catching up on the the blowback podcast, uh, you know, the the last couple of um, you know, the last last week or so, and you know, they they made the point about two thousand four that yeah, if you you know, if you Google um, you know, this thing about you know the the the, the way the election played out in Ohio in two thousand four, you can get into a pretty dark place pretty quickly. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think it I think it felt to me like things were just really, really grim at the time Um, and and yeah, that that things were going off the rails. And and I still feel yeah, that that this was this huge turning point for, you know, our country and and for the world and, and that things could have been even worse. You can imagine even worse outcomes. But but I think things could have been a lot different and a lot better.
0: I I, I kind of have the same story. I mean, it was it, Iraq was really kind of the the run up, like the the t- year and a half or two years between the nine eleven attack and you know the the sort of immediate push to turn this into a, a cause to invade Iraq when it was obvious even to to you know. Um, Me And I was like, I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, but I was, uh, you know, sort of raised on the Gulf War and watching CNN and all the kind of rah-rah, you know, America's great and winning the Cold War and all this kind of like 90s, you know, America's the world's only superpower, all this nonsense. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I mean, I, I kind of, I had some skepticism about some of it, but I wasn't like that aware of of you know what was really going on like you know to to go back to think about you know uh what we were doing to iraq long before 9 11 you know the the sanctions and uh just the the you know horrific things that the united states was was inflicting upon uh the iraqi people it was was eye opening uh, but really that like that period where y- you could just see like this march to war that had no justification that had no relationship to the attack uh, was just shocking to me I mean I remember just being like you know there were times where I wouldn't like my jaw would drop and I would think what is going on here like and then of course you know once you get into that space and kind of see this happen it it changes your perception of a lot of other things so I think uh, you know it was a very formative uh, kind of thing, but I want to talk about the quote-unquote good war, the the justifiable war, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan, and I I wonder if you know you you your work obviously you know is is more. Uh, related to African politics, specifically West African politics to the Sahel. Uh, But you, you know, you encounter a lot of groups in that region that that function in, at least in broad strokes, similarly to the Taliban. And I wonder, uh, you know, if you could talk about some of the lessons that uh, you can take away from from uh, you know the the situation in the sahel with respect to what i think is sort of the futility of the united states kind of thinking that it can outlast the taliban or that it can somehow uh you know defeat the taliban in a in a in a extended conflict or on the on the basis of uh afghan politics when you know you're talking about contesting a group that is like fully embedded in Afghan politics and is is in Afghanistan as opposed to uh, you know the sort of superpower kind of interloper coming in from abroad are there do you see parallels there
1: yeah i mean and i think you know i was thinking when you were when you were talking about your own experience i mean i think i think the thing that, that took me a while to move on in the 2000s was was afghanistan i mean i i wouldn't say that i was you know from what I can recall, I don't I don't know that I was like supportive of the invasion. I mean I, I don't know that I thought about it that deeply, you know, at the age of, of eighteen or whatever. But I, I think, you know, by I mean, even by the time Obama was coming in, I felt like this just isn't gonna work. Yeah, that these you know, that 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 the Taliban will simply outlast the United States, that that it seems that, you know, the, the United States commits too many abuses there, that that the um, you know, that that uh, large, you know, swath of the population didn't, you know, wasn't enthusiastic and is not enthusiastic now about the U.S. presence. I mean, I think, you know, one thing looking at some of the groups and, you know, some of the armed groups in, in, um, you know, northeastern Nigeria, Boko Haram, looking at some of the jihadist groups in the Sahel and, and so forth. I mean, they have been Tremendously tenacious and and savvy and so forth and and they have been you know for for uh, in some ways like you know hanging on and, and outlasting you know their their national governments and, and operating in in many ways in a context that that is a lot less favorable to them than the Afghan context is to Afghanistan. Um, and, and some of the groups, you know, all, basically all of the groups in the Sahel are, are more hardline in ways than, than the Taliban, right? Boko Haram is more hardline than the Taliban, more, you know, more extreme, more brutal. Um, you know the the groups in Mali right in particular the the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, right? These are these are more extreme than the Taliban and yet they still hang on and yet they find, you know local support They're also operating in contexts, you know in Nigeria and, and in the you know and in the Sahel where yeah those, you know Particularly Mali, you know, etc. Those are weak states, but they've never completely collapsed, right? But in Afghanistan you have you have you know, all sorts of more in a way, like advantages for the Taliban. I mean, they were they were the national government of the country for a while. They emerged in the context of total, you know, collapse and, and war fatigue. They are much more sophisticated than any of the groups in, in the Sahel or in Nigeria, right? So if if those groups, you know, you know, JNM, Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, Boko Haram, if those groups are difficult for the Nigerian military, the French military, others to defeat then how much more, you know, difficult to defeat is the Taliban? I don't know if I'm making the point fully, but I, I guess I'm saying, yeah, the Taliban is that much more rooted and that much more sophisticated. Um,
0: yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's, I, yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, y- you know, you've got groups in the Sahel who, if anything, should be kind of more divorced from the, the public and they're still able to hang on and, and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, there, there's still a, a, an audience for them, uh, and the Taliban, you know, if anything, is is you know more tied into Afghan society. I I I, I sort of, you know, I want to talk about, and this I think this is something you know you've t- thought about with respect to the Sahel, and we're going to get into the uh, summit earlier this month, the G5 French summit. Uh, earlier this month but there's a you know something we talked about before is the the role that France plays in in West Africa and the extent to which it almost um, you know in the context of counterterrorism and like fighting these uh, these groups it impedes in some ways a, a more like a sounder more permanent political solution uh, to the problem and I, I i wonder if you see parallels in uh the way that the united states you know sort of operates in afghanistan and i think i'm thinking about like uh you know even there's even polling in afghanistan of of uh you know when you get out into the public and, and ask them, you know, what are your what what do you think about the Taliban? They don't poll well. Uh like there's not a lot of people saying, oh yeah, I support the Taliban. They're not popular. Uh and yet, you know, just by virtue of the fact that they're fighting against this foreign occupier, they can, you know, claim that at least. Uh I, I wonder, you know, that really I think that that gets them a lot of uh, Crédence, and then you can talk about sort of the ways that the United States uh, kind of papers over governance failures. I think on the part of the the successive, um, you know, very weak governments that it's set up in Kabul. Uh, I just wonder if you know if you see some of the same kinds of things happening in Afghanistan, where the U.S. presence is almost counterproductive uh, to kind of defeating this this group and and ending the the conflict.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that I think that, you know, among among analysts and commentators, I think very rightly there's a kind of an allergy to comparing Mali or the Sahel or Nigeria or anything with with Afghanistan. Right. Because sometimes there's there's this tendency in you know, in in foreign policy or the magazine, I mean, or or in you know other sort of high profile you know venues like that that comment on foreign affairs to just say, oh, malistan Sahelistan. I think there's even a book or maybe multiple books called Sahelistan, right? And so, I think you know some some analysts, including me, get get nervous about drawing close parallels between between say Mali and Afghanistan, but. I think the parallels are actually much closer on the side of, of the US and France. I think that they, you know, as, as your question indicates, right. You know, that that they they've they get the US and France have gotten drawn into similar types of thinking about their ventures in, in these places. Right. And, and the idea that, you know, at least rhetorically, both the US and France sometimes seems to bo- seem to box, them, box themselves in, right, to say, you know, okay, this isn't going well, we, we can't leave, we don't quite know, you know, what the end state is going to be, or the end state is just some sort of total fantasy. Um, but if we leave, then we're afraid that, you know, the, this will become a quote unquote, safe haven, that that it'll threaten, you know, our national interests that will get, you know, dragged back in, etc. And so the, the debate actually can be sort of eerily similar. And I think the kind of lack of of grappling with the futility of what they're doing, you know, can can be very similar for the U.S. and France. I mean, France is in a lot of ways less involved, right? Like they never tried to, you know, they never tried to run Mali, I think, you know, I, I, in recent years. Right. Obviously, you have the colonial period. But in recent years, I don't think they tried to sort of, you know, directly politically control what happened in, in Mali, maybe to the same extent as the U.S. and Afghanistan. But, yeah, I do think that the French presence has these kind of distorting effects. I mean, you know, and, and and the most obvious kind of example or, or manifestation of that is the question of dialogue with jihadists. I mean, now it's, you know, becoming very clear that substantial swaths of the Sahelian elite and and presumably substantial swaths of the population want to try dialogue. And France has been starting to get kind of ambivalent on this issue. but But for the most part, you know, for the last three, four years and more, they've been publicly opposed to dialogue. And this, you know, we've I think we've talked about it on on your podcast before. Right. This starts to seem pretty neocolonial and heavy handed for France to say, you know, OK, we're not the political authorities here. And yet we're going to dictate or seem to dictate, you know, what what can and can't be done at the political level within other countries. Um, so yeah, I think that's you know, and that issue in in some ways is 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 growing even more. This this misalignment between France and their ostensible Sahelian partners on the question of dialogue.
0: It's interesting because I mean, the, you know, the Trump administration obviously started engaging in its own dialogue uh, with the Taliban, but even you know the way that that we handled that seems like uh, you know just it was just so badly. Managed and and cut really the the Afghan government completely out of the process basically I mean it was sort of like instead of supporting which I think you know I, something you've you've talked about uh, in this aisle like the you know the role that France could play could be supporting uh, regional governments in in engaging in dialogue with these groups instead of supporting the Afghan government uh it, it's you know we did it we cut our own deal with the Taliban and then we're like okay now it's your turn and like it just yeah. seems like a very bizarre way to go about that you know to go about engaging with uh with the with that group
1: yeah and I think that you know the last couple months the kind of French um you know, ambivalence, public ambivalence, even or, or, you know, self-contradictory kind of stance on this is, is also problematic. I mean, because sometimes, you know, there was this anonymous official from the presidency who was quoted in the media in December who, you know, gave this anonymous interview and was saying, yeah, I think there's certain elements of, you know, the jihadists in the Sahel who could be talked with. And and everybody assumed from that, including me, you know, that that must mean Jainim, right, the, the Al-Qaeda, you know, subsidiary. Um, because there's still, you know, the, the even among proponents of dialogue, there's a lot of skepticism that, that there could be any dialogue with the Islamic State side. Um, but then Macron, you know, you, you you mentioned you want to talk about the, the summit that just happened in, in Chad. You know, there he was talking about, you know, viewing as enemies and not interlocutors. I mean, that's basically the phrase he used. These are enemies and not interlocutors. The precise people whom... You know the the a lot of the Malian elite wants wants to talk to right. This is Ghali and Amadou Koufa, the two most prominent Al Qaeda linked leaders in Mali, right. So if Macron is there saying that, you know, basically he considers them enemies, and any implication is is that yeah that they're going to try to kill them, right? Then then you know then whatever this this, you know, anonymous official from the presidency was saying is totally contradictory, right. And uh, I think I think it's not helping. Um,
0: the other thing that that I think happens, and I, I feel guilty of this myself, um, and I think it's something that you probably encounter a lot um, in, you know, coverage of Boko Haram or the Islamic State West Africa or uh, JNIM even, you know, some of these other groups, is that the tendency to uh, oversimplify them, to sort of flatten them out, like Boko Haram you know, you talk about Boko Haram as though it's all uh, just one thing, like a very tightly con- connected organization, and uh, you know everybody's sort of following the home office dictates, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's there's a, a an even bigger tendency to do that with respect to the Taliban and you sort of lose the kind of, and this is something I, you know, you talked about it, uh, you wrote about in your book to some degree. Um, you, you lose the kind of three dimensional look at these organizations as really collections of local factions kind of, you know, with regional commanders doing their own thing. And um, do you see that also happening? I, I, Sometimes am aware enough to see it happening with respect to the Taliban, but I wonder if you if that's something that something that bothers you when you sort of see uh, coverage of of Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know some of that comes out of thinking that seemed to to gel very quickly after nine eleven. I mean, a, a very like, and I tried to get this little tried to get at this a little bit in the the piece I wrote for Foreign Exchanges. I mean just this very weird thinking, you know, and, and self-contradictory thinking. And and one way it plays out is that, you know, Al Qaeda and others are assumed to be supremely ideological, you know, that they're assumed to be these these fanatics, basically, you know, they they hate us for our freedoms or whatever. Um, but then the content of what they say, you know, if, if, if what they say is supposed to be taken at face value, you would think one would pay attention to what they say. Right. But, you know, all the sort of specific you know, political uh, grievances, complaints that you know Bin Laden or others aired got totally swept under the rug and never discussed. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying obviously that I that I agree with him or that I condone them, but he he made a lot of pretty specific political arguments about Saudi Arabia, about the United States, and etc. And yeah, I think that you know, then there's this kind of assumption too that that JNIM or the Taliban or whoever Boko Haram that they're all completely ideologically motivated uh, and that that. Yeah, really flattens things. I mean, because yeah, at the level of the, the local fighters, there seems to be substantial evidence that people don't necessarily think of themselves as signing up for a grand ideological project, that they may be motivated by uh, self-preservation. They may be motivated by, you know, their the, the, the decisions of their friends. They may be motivated by a desire for revenge against the security forces or against another community and so forth. Um, so, yeah, it's weird. And then and then, too, you know, I, I think, yeah, France seems to do this a bit, too, is just to consider JNM or, or others as these fanatics and not listen to to what they say, right? you know, and yeah, they, they do have some specific kinds of political demands. Um, Regardless of whether one agrees with them or not, you know, to understand them just as sort of fanatics, I think is is really, yeah, really reductive and counterproductive.
0: Even on the level of I mean, one of the things that that has been going on in Afghanistan since last February when the U.S. and and the Taliban reached this uh, peace deal, it was just a a new report from the U.N. uh, that came out this week. Uh, that said um, civilian casualties in Afghanistan were down considerably. I can't remember the the exact figure. It was like 15% or 25%, something like that, uh, in 2020, uh, you know, year, as compared to 2019. But uh, from the period from September through the end of the year, uh, that last quarter of the year, was the civilian casualties were up like 45%. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really spiked uh, over that same period in 2019. And that just so happens uh, to coincide with the period after uh, the Afghan government and the Taliban started talking to one another, which hasn't, you know, gone anywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. But those talks, because uh, I think in part because they're just sort of like, you know, everybody's gotten thrown together and and it's sort of like a free-for-all uh, in terms of negotiations, the, the you know the impetus has been uh, on the Taliban, or at least on some factions of the Taliban, to engage in heavier a heavier level of violence to kind of claw, you know, some some leverage in the bargaining table, or maybe and this is, you know, where I think you sort of lose the, the kind of depth within these organizations, maybe there are some factions of the Taliban who don't want these peace talks to succeed, but you don't get that in the, uh, you know, the sort of regular coverage of the Taliban as, you know, being kind of all one thing and very tightly ideologically connected. Uh, but, I, you know, I feel like you you know you ha- can entertain the possibility at least that there are some more hard line elements within the Taliban. Uh, one of the things you talk about in in the piece for for foreign exchanges was the Ethiopian. Uh, invasion of Somalia in 2006 that the United States supported, uh, that was I- intended to take down the Islamic Courts Union, uh, which again, I think, you know, was identified as this kind of tight, kind of two-dimensional uh, organization. Uh, but getting rid of the ICU, as you say, kind of just allowed... The hardline elements of, of the ICU, because there was this sort of, uh, you know, more nuanced depth within the organization. Uh, they just rebranded themselves as Al Shabaab and, and, you know, the sort of, uh, the last 15 years are <laughs> speak for themselves in terms of, uh, you know, the, the extent of the violence that Al Shabaab has, has wrought in Somalia, uh, you know, really kind of, you know, as a result of not understanding I think uh the organization that that you're you're dealing with in the in this case the ICU but you know it could apply to the Taliban could apply to Boko Haram or uh, JNIM or any of these groups
1: yeah yeah and I mean I think that the the analysis of these groups tends to often be um Ideological, you know, so if there's if there's divisions within the groups, they tend to get, you know, understood first and foremost by by analysts in ideological ways, you know, who who disagrees with who on which which ideological issue or a lot of times with, you know, Somalia or to the extent that I'm, you know, familiar with with uh, Afghanistan or, you know, definitely with Mali things you could cast in, in ethnic or I guess in Somalia, we could say clan terms, right? You know, a lot of analysis of who belongs to what, you know, faction or something, you know, and so that I mean, that can be, I guess, a form of complexity to be aware of those individual, you know, of those those axes of, of divisions. But yeah, you know, a sense of, of, you know, political divisions within groups or or a sense of, yeah, the, the sort of multiple motivations that might be at, at play within a group often seems to be absent. And yeah, a lot of times then, you know, decisions will be understood in, in retrospect as mistakes. Um, you know, I think a lot of, you know, I would, I would imagine even a lot of, you know, American policymakers who work on Africa would say, yeah, you know, the, the 2006 support by the United States to Ethiopia for that invasion was it was a grievous mistake. Um, but those mistakes keep happening, right? You know, groups keep being typecast and understood reductively. And, and then, yeah, these, uh, you know, often the decisions are still made to to escalate things and to keep escalating things. Um,
0: so you brought up the uh, the G5 summit which I know I said uh, I wanted to talk about and, and I, I I wanted to get your take I mean the big sort of the the one thing that came out of it and from the from a like media reporting uh perspective was I guess the 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 government of Chad announced that uh it's sending 1200. Uh, soldiers as part of the the G5's kind of uh you know multilateral multinational force to to combat jihadist groups uh in the Sahel is sending 1200 soldiers to the uh border the tri-border region you know Niger Mali and and Burkina Faso uh, which is really kind of riddled with uh jihadist groups JNIM and and it's Burkina Faso and its offshoot in Burkina Faso are very active. The Islamic State in the Greater Sahara is very active in this region. So it's 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 got a lot of problems. I mean, it's it's a very kind of conflict-ridden region. Um, the the reporting about this Chadian deployment initially, uh, I think, sort of. Uh, speculated that maybe this was the precursor to the French government drawing down its force in that region. But as it turned out, Macron uh, announced that that they're sticking around at least for the for the time being. Uh, I wonder, you know, what what was your kind of overall takeaway from the summit and and of that uh, decision by Macron to to kind of leave everything in
1: place? Yeah, I mean, those were definitely the two. Sort of headline grabbing things that I saw the the Chadian decision and then you know the the you know Macron's decision to to not withdraw any forces from Operation Barkhane at least in the short term I mean yeah and there too you know it seems to be that that French policy is getting more and more um, I don't know tentative maybe is the word or or at least sort of you know visibly uh, ambivalent and and wavering. Um, You know, and the the analysis that I read a lot, you know, points to to French domestic politics as a a driver of that. Right. You know, Macron looking up at the at the upcoming elections and, and, you know, nervous about how, you know, maybe some public fatigue with the with the Sahel mission is going to play out. But then also afraid of, you know, attacks from the right and being understood as, you know, or, or, you know, criticized as, as weak on terrorism or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, the French and, and you know, including him as an individual are increasingly sending you know, very mixed signals. Um, and, yeah, you know, he I mean, I think a lot of French policy still remains essentially a fantasy. I mean, there's this idea that, you know, there's going to be military progress, which seems to mean effectively decapitating jihadist groups. Um, you know, and they've done some of that and it hasn't it hasn't made any improvement in the situation really. Um, and then there's supposed to be development, but I think that's mostly almost like a public relations exercise. I mean, maybe there's some, you know, to the extent I've seen, they they seem to be obviously like real projects, but I think they're, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, more for for the photo op than for some sort of long term impact on on mass numbers of ordinary people's lives. And then they talk about, you know, the then France talks about quote unquote the return of the state, right? The idea that you know, Mali or Burkina or whatever is going to, you know, I don't know what that means. I don't know that they know what it means. You know, it seems to suggest that there's going to be some kind of influx of state personnel, not just security forces, but, you know, judges and police and so forth. Um, But that that doesn't seem a it seems vague and B, it doesn't seem to, to grapple with reality. You know, that that resentment of state corruption appears to be one of the deep drivers of the conflict in certain places that that state security force abuses by Sahelian you know, militaries and police and whatever have become themselves a driver of the conflict. So anyway, I mean, long story short, I think at the political level, France continues to, um, you know, spout more slogans than, than concrete ideas. And then in practice, you know, you can see it with the Chadian deployment. Right. You know, if if there's supposed to be all this like better governance and and greater accountability and more reach of the state into people's lives. Why, if that's if that's the end state, is there this what seems to be, you know, basically unwavering French support or international support generally for for autocrats? Right. You know, Idris Debbie, as you know, has been the, the dictator of Chad since 1990. Right um you had mentioned you know that, that you wanted to talk about the nigerian election too i mean the you know the this election you know there's some there's some significant problems with the numbers i think with the official results the the 2016 election you know the main opposition candidate was was in detention for a good part of the the election period right you know the in mali the you know the 2018 presidential election had just so much violence in some parts of the country that i don't think they really got to participate in any case there's like a laundry list of of, you know political problems with the very rulers on whom france seems to be depending to you know to carry out its its political strategy and then you know things like the coup in mali seems to have, have barely elicited much reflection on the french side you know this would seem to be an indication that Things are not going very well politically, uh, but it it doesn't seem to have prompted any serious change of strategy or much much soul searching on the French part.
0: I, I mean, I think that's another good parallel, really, in a sense where where yeah. you know France's involvement in the Sahel is like it's like a microcosm, in a sense, of the the bigger war on terror, the the United States, yeah. or you know, a parallel maybe to to what the United States has done in Afghanistan, which is to support. Successive governments that, uh, you know, don't have a a great positive presence, um, you know, out in the sort of hinterlands of their countries. They're largely sort of capital based governments. Or maybe you know city, you know city-based governments, but they're not well-regarded. Uh, elections are constantly, you know, a source of tension rather than kind of a peaceful transit transfer of power or peaceful uh, re-election or, or whatever they may be. Uh, they're they're generally disputed in in sometimes ugly ways. And and if you look at sort of the if you can get, sort of imagine the the way that the average person like the average Afghan or the average Malian or or Nigerian uh, encounters their government it's it's you know, in an extractive way, it's like some yeah. you know the the governor kind of taking from me or the state taking from me instead of you know a, a sense of like uh, you know utility provision or basic necessities being met. It's 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 a very you know it's a much more kind of uh, hostile relationship between uh, the people and their government, and I I, I wonder. You know, there there is a uh, – there's a sort of French – strong French preference for continuity uh, in the Sahel, even though continuity is part of the reason why uh, there are all these governance issues and, and they're feeding into the conflict. And I think that's uh, – it's the same thing with the United States. There's a sort of preference for just kind of this, this – um kind of illusion of stability or the the kind of illusion of of continuity that these governments provide when in fact you know they they feed the instability but but uh y- you know whether it's because um, you know, we just don't understand the situation, or you know, the, when I say we, I mean you know, the government, the U.S. government or the French government doesn't understand the situation, or because there's something more kind of corrupt uh, under the surface happening. I don't know, uh, but it feels like sort of the uh, uh, the same kind of uh, process at play at play in in, in these two cases.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and it's weird. I mean, I think it's you know, I think it's um, really, I don't. Know. I mean, yeah. I don't, maybe the underlying logic to it is just total total cynicism, right? But it's funny. I mean, it was funny with the coup in Mali, right? That that there had been, you know, such seeming you know French acceptance of of you know the the president Keita, the civilian president who was in power from twenty thirteen to twenty twenty, as you know, like such you know, acquiescence to him to 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 pretty, you know, blatant corruption and so forth. And then when the coup happened, there was acquiescence to the coup, you know, almost overnight. I mean, there was very little talk of of like reversing, you know, the coup or something like that. It seemed to be accepted as a, you know, fait accompli in, in you know, a matter of days even. Um, so there's this like pro status quo bias, even when the status quo <laughs> shifts overnight, you know, then it's like, OK, this is the new status quo. We're good with this um yeah and i think it i think it makes talk of political solutions you know dubious if not if not incoherent um and i think also i mean this is something that i've meant to like think about more and and get into more but I, I you know maybe this is more from the american side but i think another contradiction is like the idea that um you know that 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 the part of the solution is for states to provide all kinds of more services and and to be more present to be more robust and and to yeah to 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 be more than that extractive scenario that you described but then at the same time you know there's still a lot of that thinking from from the time of structural adjustment in the 80s on forward that that the state needs to be super lean that the solution is to privatize that civil servants should be fired that states are, you know, inherently kind of uh, wasteful and bloated and, and how how policymakers square that I, or whether they do, I, I really I really don't know. You know, it's sometimes, you know, you listen to like the supposed conflict experts. It sounds like they're almost envisioning some form of of socialism on the part of the state, you know, the massive health health care and other services. But then at the same time, you still have this IMF World Bank line about uh, a sort of a skeletal state. Um Yeah, I find it weird.
0: Um, One of the other things that I think is interesting um, that you you mentioned, uh, you know, the the idea that domestic politics in France are sort of driving uh, Macron or tempting, kind of tempting Macron to – Maybe withdraw some forces, but he's kind of trying to balance, you know, uh, wanting to appease a, a segment of the public that, that wants the, its foreign mission to end versus, uh, you know, the criticism that he might take of being, you know, kind of soft on terror. I think one of the interesting kind of developments in in Western politics, uh, and this this has to do with, with Trump, it has to do with, uh, you know, the rise of the far right kind of uh, in general in Europe and the United States uh there's a real kind of i think um fission or frission you know, like a fissure sorry uh there's a real kind of fissure on the on the right uh between the kind of traditional right that would be you know first in line to say you know uh you're being soft on terror and you're you know pulling you know if you're pulling forces out you're you're weak and and this is bad and this sort of new right that's more nationalistic, more insular, um, that, you know, includes Trump kind of trying to negotiate a quick exit from Afghanistan. And I think, you know, doing it in a, in a kind of very slapdash, uh, irresponsible way. And maybe, you know, that's, that's what's at play, uh, in France that, that doesn't, you know, it's, this is a kind of new far right sense that we don't want to be engaged in these extended overseas deployments. That that's bad. It's you know that it's harmful. Um, and and you know, I feel like you know Macron sort of looking ahead to a rematch with Marine Le Pen and maybe not liking the poll numbers so much i mean he, yeah. he he leads in all the polls but not by that much when you think about you know kind of how radically fringe she is you you would you would think he would be doing better you know maybe you know maybe he's trying to balance that because because this seems like a new you know kind of feature a new little uh, wrinkle in in western politics that you have this uh, you know much more kind of insulated right that that actually opposes a lot of this overseas military adventurism
1: yeah yeah i mean i think yeah i mean there there i would i would defer to you and others i mean i don't i don't know the french domestic scene as well i mean but yeah in in the us i mean broadly speaking it does seem like in some ways it was it was easier to to imagine at this point of a republican president you know really initiating some effort at at you know a deal with the Taliban, however, however flawed and and you know messy than to imagine a democratic president. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, your your sense of where the Biden administration is going on all those things is is better than mine for sure. Um, one of the you know last thing I think before we move on
0: to to talking about Niger uh, for the last bit of this this talk um there's this sense of the the forever war that afghanistan has become uh, a forever war which is a, a kind of newish term that um often gets poo-pooed by you know establishment foreign policy types as some like fringe kind of hippie uh, criticism and, and you know it's very unserious to say this um uh, but i think there is a a, a, a substance behind the concept of a forever war, which which is relatively new, um, and and I've seen people, you know, there's a guy at, at New America, David Sturman, who just kind of did a did a little Twitter thing on this, and and it's sort of, uh, you know, there is a definition that's coalescing, you know, behind this term of a conflict where. You know, the main belligerent or the strongest kind of belligerent in the conflict uh, can't really achieve the goals that it's kind of laid out for for victory. If there is a a, a sort of victory state that, that, you know, has been defined uh, there, those goals are unachievable. But at the same time, uh, it can't really be defeated either. And I think it applies certainly to Afghanistan. I mean, the United States can't be defeated by the Taliban in any sense right. that that word means, you know, makes any sense. Uh, but it also can't achieve like, you know, the creation of a, a stable modern nation state in Afghanistan that seems like, uh, you know, it is it is beyond the United States power to sort of fiat that into existence. And I feel like there's a, a, a similar thing at play for France in the Sahel where, you know, France isn't going to lose... A war to the Islamic State, of the greater Sahara. Like that's just inconceivable. But at the same time, if the goal is like the defeat of these organizations or these these jihadist groups, uh, you know, there there's no way that's going to happen through the the kind of mechanism that that the French government has chosen, which is just kind of airstrikes, basically at this point,
1: yeah. no, I'm fully fully agree. And I think it's, you know, I think it's it's this weird it's this weird middle ground and and I think there's yeah who knows I mean maybe I mean obviously you know as as uh, as we discussed while I was working on the piece and you know as you rightly pointed out you know the the U.S. is not necessarily just this like blundering empire right there there are definitely interests at stake and people who you know profit financially and politically even from these long-term open-ended highly unsuccessful ventures. Um, but at the level of the venture itself, yeah, it, it can't, it can't work. You know, it, it can't work. The US and Afghanistan, there, you know, it'll never get to that end state. France will never get to the desired end state, you know, or at least the, the stated desired end state in, in the Sahel. And it's because, you know, you could go bigger, right? You could go, you could go full imperial. You could say Afghanistan will now be a colony of the United States that we will rule through, you know, horrific uh, suppression of the population and and just explicit total, you know, dominance of of the United States or, or France could like Try to recolonize the Sahelian countries, right? You could you could like quote-unquote win in that sense But that's you know a completely morally wrong and then B That's just out of the pale for for international norms now Or you could say, you know, we're just gonna let we're gonna sit back and let other countries politics You know play out and hope it plays out for the best but in, in instead it ends up in this kind of weird yeah, middle ground where, where you know, supposedly some constellation of stars are going to align with, quote unquote, the right local partner and, you know, enough, you know, training of foreign forces and so forth, you know, and, and the right kind of military presence and, you know, civilian ca- centric counterinsurgency and all this is supposed to come together into some sort of ideal political outcome that that would allow the U.S. to leave Afghanistan or would leave, you know, would allow France to leave the Sahel. But none, none of that will ever happen. And so it just becomes this kind of, you know, frozen conflict. I mean, the 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 sort of dangerous thing about talking about it at a level of real honesty is that then you get people, you know, from the neocon perspective or, you know, whatever, arguing well that's precisely the problem is that it's not open-ended that as soon as you put a timeline on it you're advert that that the reason that the u.s won't win in afghanistan is because we're signaling to the taliban that we'll leave but that all yeah as you know just becomes a pretext for staying forever
0: i I mean i think there are i have seen some kind of some of the more um uh, uh, you know un um unencumbered maybe or un kind of reconstructed uh, neocons uh, talk about these wars or talk about Afghanistan at least and I think it would apply in in uh, a lot of other cases as well uh, as a, sort of akin to uh, kind of policing the frontiers of empire and yeah. and their argument uh, you know, and, and the ones that are, are willing to be honest about it, like Robert Kagan, for example, is, uh, you know, you know, writes this stuff all the time. Um, you know, they will they will get right up to the line of saying, you know, basically, you know, this is an empire and it's America's empire. It's a uh, it's good that America has an empire. Uh, and this is what you have to do. You have to police the frontiers of your empire. And that's an open ended. I mean, that has to be an open ended thing. And, and uh, you know, it's I mean, I guess good on them for being honest about it but it's it's sort of you know it's it's dismaying to hear that you know offered by people who are considered serious foreign policy people who get you know uh offers to write for foreign affairs and uh yeah. you know all the big journals and and uh, that everybody reads and and have this uh, we have this worldview. It's, it's just deeply, it's deeply troubling. Um, okay. So I, I want to get, uh, I don't want to, you know, want us to run too long here. And I do want to get into the election, uh, in Niger, which, uh, you know, I've been, uh, covering a little bit in the newsletter. I, I don't have the, the, the background I feel like to, uh, to really analyze what's going on. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave this, uh, I'm going to let, let you kind of take, take us through uh, who are the the main figures here and, uh, uh, you know, what is the, the sort of context around this election? I mean, there's a lot of, you know... Talk about uh, this could be the first peaceful transition in Nigeri- Niger's history, and uh, you know it's it's a rarity <laughs> for West Africa for an incumbent president not to try to extend his his time in office beyond his two terms. Um, but I think you've got a got a little more skeptical take on that. So I want to uh, let you kind of kind of take us through the what's going on.
1: Yeah, I mean, so. I mean, one one place to start. I mean, I think that things are moving into a new sort of phase in in the Sahel, at least, you know, in terms of how leaders approach elections, Um, you had a you had a phase where, um, you know, from from the, you know, starting in the 1990s, you had you had, you know, what's sometimes called the third wave of democratization, you know, and and a lot of these West African countries or African countries more broadly were part of that. So, you know, places were basically long ruling military dictatorships or in some cases, you know, civilian one party states fell and you had some genuine competition within the system Um, in Niger. You had then uh, an alternation between basically civilian and military rule from from the 1990s through about 2011, um, where the military would step in periodically, you know, either you know, for for their own interests or presenting themselves as sort of like a referee of democracy, right? That if if they felt things had got off the rails, then they would step in and sort of reset the system. So the last time that happened was 2010, 2011. Then you had the the current president, the outgoing president, Muhammadu um, Isafu come in. Um, and he had been a longtime fixture of, of the scene, you know, the, the 2011 elections. I mean, there's definitely been allegations of, of fraud and manipulation, but I think it was generally credited as being, you know, pretty, pretty good. It was an open vote right, organized by the military and so forth. Um, Isufu then has been in office now for, for 10 years. He won one election in 2016. He has been just a, a darling of the Europeans, of the Americans. Um, Niger is seen, I think, by you know a lot of a lot of European and American policymakers as the best run country, at least out of Mali, Burkina, and and, uh, and Niger. You know, and then and then in some ways, I think, seen as the best run country among the whole five. You know, now counting Mauritania and and Chad. Um, I think we're moving into this like kind of new phase, though, where 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 leaders don't go for a third term, right? You know, whether willingly or unwillingly, because I think they've seen you know, how that played out in in negative ways for some of their predecessors. I was thinking about this earlier today, and I think, you know, there are some in some sense there are leaders who are like grandfathered in, you know. So Idris is, as I mentioned before, has been there in Chad since 1990, you know, changed the Constitution multiple times. Never would, you know, Paris or Washington really, really challenge that. Right. So I think he knows that he can stay you know basically as long as he wants right or or until there's some sort of massive popular you know pushback against him but i think leaders who have come in you know in the last decade or so realize that if they try for a third term there's there's a chance of some real real problems right you know that that's basically why there was the last military coup in Niger in 2010 was cuz the the leader at the time had had you know gone for an extra constitutional third term so i think leaders are sometimes now calculating Okay, it's just not worth it to try to change the constitution, to to try to sort of mess around with things. And and so, you know, Isafu basically has then handed off power to to the now winner of the you know the current elections. So Mohamed Bazoum, you know, longtime you know fellow member of his party, um, you know, very, very senior member of, of government until he resigned to run for president um and so bazoom you know niger like like other you know like france and other francophone countries they have a two round system for the presidential elections so he he won about i don't know say high 30s you know percent you know maybe roughly 40 yeah, i think it's around 39% yeah that was okay yeah. yeah that was kind of the the range i was thinking to. um you know so i was a little bit surprised cuz i thought i thought that maybe he would just win outright on the you know on the first round and and i think you know, I think there's some, well, maybe I'm too cynical, but from my cynical perspective, I think these are soft authoritarians who are getting more and more sophisticated at what they do, you know? So this is not like, uh, whatever, you know, Syria or something where you're going to see an election where somebody wins with 98% of the vote, right? They're not that, they're not that crude. Um, so then you have a second round, right? So, so bazoom, and maybe that, you know, maybe that score is genuine, or maybe that score reflected the fact that, Maybe there was more, you know, latent opposition to to the ruling party among the population than they had counted on. And maybe they figured it would be too explosive to have, you know, just an outright first round victory for for Pazum. And he was running against some some heavyweights, you know, of, of the political scene. So anyway, so he entered into, you know, the second round election that just concluded on um, on the 21st of this month between him and uh, between Bazoom and, and Muhammad Usman, who's a uh, former president who was in office from from 93 to 96. Uh, and yeah, I mean, so so now Bazoom has won, you know, I'm, I'm putting the the numbers in front of me, the official numbers in front of me while we talk. So one basically 56 percent to 44 um, percent. On the face of that, that is a that is a plausible score. I think what what has concerned me is is the numbers out of, you know, one of the of the, you know, seven regions of the country in particular. So Tahua, which is in the West, um, where, you know, the, the margin for Bazoom is just just incredibly lopsided and where there's you know, you can click because now it's getting more and more transparent. You're getting more and more granular details from some of the election commissions in the region. Um, where if you go through in that region and click on some of the commune level results where he's winning, you know, in the most extreme case, you know, here's one where, where he, you know, where Bazoom receives 54,564 votes and Usman receives 1,562, you know, so just a, a blowout, right. Um, so I think, I think it's possible that there was some fraud, um, you know, and, and that his numbers were padded. Um, yeah, maybe I'll stop there. And, yeah, see, I don't want to monologue too long.
0: <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, right, and so Osman is is contesting this. He's alleging fraud. Um, there have been some protests since Bazun was declared the winner. Uh, I, 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 you've you've outlined the sort of the uh, ways in which there are maybe some legitimate questions uh, about this outcome. Um, and I, 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 think. I mean, I think it's interesting. When you talk about uh, presidents kind of becoming a little more sophisticated about uh, how they they manage power and not trying to just kind of stick around. Uh, and there were two cases last year. I mean, in in other parts of West Africa, not in the Sahel, but uh, Alpha Conde and Guinea. Uh, and uh, Alassane Ouattara and in, in the Ivory Coast uh, of two guys who did go the route of like changing the constitution and uh, manufacturing a third term for themselves. Uh, but it, what's interesting is in Wattara's case, uh, he was not going to do that. Like he had identified a successor <laughs> in the same way that I think Isufu has done with with Mohammed Bazoum. Uh, he had identified a successor. His successor died very unexpectedly, uh, and it was only after that that. He kind of said, OK, well, I guess I'll, I'll run for a third term, which I believe I'm constitutionally allowed to do. Um, but I, I think he tried to, you know, he tried to do the same thing that you're talking about, to sort of sort of uh, manage the transition to somebody else. And I, I wonder, you know. Uh, as I say the a lot as I said you know when I was you know we started this uh this discussion of Niger a lot of the media coverage has been around uh the idea that this could be the first peaceful transition from one president to another and uh, isn't that great Niger hasn't experienced anything like that before uh but it's sort of easy to, to transition when it's your guy who's coming yeah. next right I mean it's sort of yeah. easy to to do a peaceful transition when you've picked the guy you you're transitioning to, uh, so I wonder, you know, how how much credit you can actually give Sufu for 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 you know kind of peacefully handing power over, and I, I wonder if that's not, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a red flag in terms of uh, you know whether you think this is a legitimate outcome or not, and, and you know I don't know if you have uh, you know some thoughts about that whole process and you've uh, as you've said you know you've kind of you know talked uh a little bit here about uh the ways that that west african leaders are maybe becoming uh more sophisticated uh, uh in terms of how they manage power but i wonder if that you know uh you've had some some thoughts about that that aspect of it
1: yeah yeah no i mean totally agree i mean i think Yeah. Does it does it matter that it will be, you know, the the first peaceful transition of power? Yeah, definitely. But, you know, does it does it also matter that it's within the same party and that it's two people who know, you know, who know each other and have worked together, you know, extremely closely for decades? Yeah, that's got to be taken into account, too. It's not the same as as. You know the opposition scoring an upset at the at the ballot box and you know it's not like nigeria in 2015 which i think was was really a huge deal um you know where the ruling party had to had to accept defeat i think um yeah and you know this i mean this maybe maybe um you know because i think that's a great point about about you know cote d'ivoire and you know guinea and so forth i mean I guess I'm like looking at Niger in part through the lens of of what happened in Mauritania in 2019, where you had some of the same types of media coverage because you had uh, Abdulaziz who who stepped down probably reluctantly. I mean, I I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall for some of those, you know, closed door conversations about that. I mean, it seems like he would have tried for a third term, but ultimately didn't. Um, and handed off power to, you know, basically his his closest associate, you know, and, and effectively another military dictator in, in civilian clothes. And yeah, you had the same kind of coverage. I mean, maybe not quite as enthusiastic as for Niger, but still pretty enthusiastic, like all oh, peaceful transfer of power and so forth. I mean, the Nigerian example, though. I mean, sorry, the, the Mauritanian example also shows, though, how how dicey it can be even for the outgoing leader, because, you know, they're in mauritania abdul aziz picked his his right-hand man and then they fell out you know very quickly so, right they've
0: yeah they've kind of gone completely <laughs> cross purposes with yeah, one another. it's yeah. interesting
1: i'd be surprised if that happened in niger but it, it shows you know if if the if the outgoing person has any ambitions to to control the the incoming person you know the, there's a lot of tension built into that no matter how close people are i mean so we'll see um, I, another thing, you know, that was sort of,
0: this sort of strikes me, you know, as, kind of listening to you describe the context of this election, the, to the extent that there was coverage and sort of, um, you know, in, in, uh, Western media, you know, kind of wire services or whatever of this election, kind of in the, in the run up to the, the second round, uh, it was uh, very much like oh Bazoom's gonna win easily. there's no question he's he's the favorite. And I wonder if that's uh shaded to some degree by uh, the extent to which kind of Western governments have embraced, Isufu and and consequently maybe you know are uh, you know very there's a, there's a favorable there's been favorable coverage of him and naturally favorable coverage I guess of his his handpicked successor uh, so there's one that that that's one thing I I, I wonder if you've you know noticed uh, and the the second my second question and this is kind of uh, uh, where I think we can leave things for now, because it's it's very much an unsettled situation at this point. Uh, what are your what is your sense of Niger's ability, kind of the Nigerian institutional ability, to litigate Osman's concerns and his claims of fraud uh, in a way that kind of uh, produces a legitimate? Uh, outcome that everybody can kind of accept at the end? uh, Or is there, you know, do you think there's a a danger of this kind of devolving into uh, into something more violent, which then I guess would upend the sort of peaceful transition of power narrative? But, uh, you know, is there a way uh, for Niger's elections kind of officials, uh, to deal with this in, in a, in a, in a peaceful kind of, um, legalistic manner.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, on the first point, I mean, yeah, I think this goes back to some of like the, the global issues we were talking about. I mean, I think there's a, there's a pro incumbent bias, especially in countries that are seen as, as theaters of the war on terror, um, you know, and, and, and it's not just, it's not just security in Niger. I mean, you know, Isifu was, a, was a darling of the Europeans on, on migration issues as well. Um, and was willing to make, you know, make, make very favorable, you know, deals with them on, in terms of, of migration. And so, yeah, I think there's, I think there's some real enthusiasm for, for Bazoum or, or at least, you know, sort of the assumption of that, that continuity is a good thing for, for Niger. Um, I mean, I think also, you know, I mean, in fairness, I think, you know, he, he has a reputation that seems to be deserved as, as, you know, competent and, you know, and very talented and smart. I mean, uh, you know, and, and he may I mean, he make a he may make a much better president than Usman would have. I mean, I'm not trying to say that Usman is some kind of, you know, uh, hero or something. And the thing about him, too, and you see this also in, in, you know, other elections in the region is that, you know, he's a fixture of the political scene, too. You know, oftentimes you get to the even in the first round, but especially in the second round, it will be two very, very known commodities running against one another. Um, and I think that also, you know, sort of hurts the opposition too. that. that they're not necessarily like change candidates. And then there's a, a tendency of the opposition to to cry foul, you know, and that I think makes makes Western governments in particular, you know, sort of see them as as whiners and not take any of their claims that seriously. And, and again, there's that pro incumbent bias. Um, so you know, I think that uh, I think that I would expect you know maybe this is too uh, too blase or something, but I would expect that Usman's claim will basically fizzle out. I mean, I base that on like similar situations and you know in Mali and so forth. I mean, I think that the the international you know actors have already weighed in. I mean, the the congratulatory calls and messages and so forth were were coming in for Bazoom. I mean, I think that I think the real sort of arena where this gets decided is, is internationally, actually. Um, you know, because once the international actors accept it, then then I think it's game over for any kind of domestic challenge. Um, you know, there's definitely been, um, serious, you know, protests and, and, you know, some, some, you know, political violence in, in Niger in the past, you know, there was, there were some, some protests or riots, whatever one wants to call them after the you know, Charlie Hebdo thing in 2015, you know, connected in, in, you know, complicated ways to, to East and to, to Paris to March that year. Um, and there's been other moments like that. There was some, you know, unrest during, during the early stages of COVID and so forth, but I, I wouldn't expect this to be, I, I wouldn't expect it to erupt into some kind of mass conflict. Um, you know? Okay.
0: Well that, that's,
1: Probably good. <laughs>
0: I think yeah, then, and I you mean, know, that's not
1: to say that there's not other huge problems. I mean, actually, you know, the, as you know, like in you know, and as we were alluding to earlier, you know, in, in the western part of the country, you have full implication of that part of the country in in, you know, the the severe, severe core conflict in, in the Sahel. In the the southeast of Niger, you still have a lot of, you know, violence and instability connected to to Boko Haram and Iswap and so forth. So you know, there's definitely other major, major sources of insecurity in the country, but yeah, I don't, I don't expect sort of a massive, violent conflict over the election result itself. Okay, well, so that's
0: it's kind of a positive-ish place to end. <laughs> I think we rare we rarely get to end on something that even remotely resembles an upbeat note. So why don't we, why don't we take advantage of this opportunity and and and. Call it an interview, um, Alex. Thank you uh, for being on the show and and welcome to FX uh, in your uh, new capacity as a contributor. Uh, I would encourage everybody to to take a look at your piece. Obviously, I would also encourage them to uh, buy buy the book "Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel." Uh, check out your blog sahelblog.wordpress.com, where you write about uh, more regional things and and just. Uh, uh, you know, I'm really happy uh, that that, um, you know, we're able to uh, kind of continue uh, having these interviews and also that that you're going to be writing for for the newsletter. I'm, I'm very excited about that. So thank you uh, for doing that. And, and thanks for being
1: on the podcast. Well, thanks again on all counts. I mean, like I said, I really appreciated the opportunity to write a kind of bigger picture piece like that and then to, to talk about it with you and also, to, yeah, to talk about these, these you know, Sahel-related issues that, that I care about a lot.
0: All right. Uh, so we'll be looking for, uh, you know, looking for more from you uh, on the newsletter and, uh, you know, I'm sure we will have cause to... to- To do this again on the podcast. It's not like uh, things in the Sahel are going to calm down anytime soon. Uh, So I'm sure there will be plenty more things to talk about. Uh, Alex, thanks again, uh, and uh, talk to you soon.
1: Uh, Thank you, and take care. All right.
0: Uh, Once again, I want to thank Alex Thurston for coming on the program, uh, talking to us about the war on terror and about the situation in the Sahel, and especially about the election in Niger. uh, I was very grateful to get his take uh, on that situation in particular. Uh, So uh, again, I'm very pleased to be able to bring Alex on board as a contributor. He's the first, hopefully, of many, uh, or at least a few, uh, over the next few weeks and months, Uh, I would urge you all to check out his piece for FX, check out his book, uh, check out his blog. I'll have links to all three in the show description. Uh, And to all of you, uh, as always, thanks for listening. Thank you for supporting FX. uh, And uh, I will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.